Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 61st episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast. And on today's episode, I'm going to be talking about women's well-being at work during COVID-19. The reason why I decided to make an episode on this is as last week I was invited to be part of the Women in Work All-Party Parliamentary Group. And this year's theme for the group is women's well-being in the workplace. And this particular meeting focused on women's well-being at work during COVID-19. And this APPG is chaired by Labour MP Jess Phillips and Tory MP Laura Farris. And I was part of a panel alongside Helen Lamprell, OBE, General Counsel and External Affairs Director at Vodafone UK, and Poppy Jaman, OBE, CEO of City Mental Health Alliance. I was really honoured to be part of this and felt it was a great platform to raise a number of issues that friends, colleagues and women I know have encountered during lockdown, during this period of COVID, being parents, being women and having to do everything. And I think it's vital that we all need to care about this, because if we are really and truly going to build back better, we need to think about the holistic woman and the specific challenges due to society in the UK that women face. The first one being that women are still predominant carers for elder or younger dependents and or and can often be sandwiched and this poses huge problems in terms of having space and time to look after themselves. Caring responsibilities also hold cultural values and so women from different cultures are going to have different expectations placed on them and this will also exacerbate the burden of care and being a carer potentially. Although in some cases it may mean that the cultural lenses are different and that women might have more support. The other thing is around loneliness. Of course, being a carer is not easy, whether it's as a traditional parent, as an adoptive parent, looking after elder dependents or both. There is a lot of loneliness involved, especially as a single parent, if you feel that you can't have anyone else to talk to or rely on. And therefore, the likelihood of then developing physical and mental illness yourself is increased. The other thing, of course, is that initially it was thought that COVID, and it did in the UK, affect more men than women. However, it seems to be that working women now are more affected by long COVID, essentially having symptoms that impact their day-to-day life, similar to chronic fatigue syndrome, similar to a lot of long-term health conditions like sore chests, lethargy, and not being able to be their optimum. And we still don't know the effects of long COVID and how that's going to impact people long term. But it is a thing and it is happening. So people aren't unwell enough to go to hospital, but they're certainly not well enough to live life in the way that they want to or in an optimum way for them. So we also know that there is a gender pay gap across all ethnicities and also a pension gap between men and women, because often women being primary carers will take time off to look after dependents, which means they're not in work and their pension will not have been paid. So very serious economic issues that then, of course, impact socioeconomic status. And of course, if we don't have enough money to live on or we're always worrying about money, that has a serious negative impact on our mental health. And then there have been the issues around home space and, you know, how people manage their space, not having enough space, not having the money to move or the time to move. Or indeed, do you really want people to look around your home at a time of COVID and when things is, things are very changeable? 
but also the expectations that have been placed on women. So still a bit having to look after your dependents while you're working, and that's been incredibly challenging. Some companies have been brilliant about this, and other companies have put women in a position where they have to take more time off or use their annual leave, which then meant over the summer they weren't able to spend quality time with their families. And especially if there's been very poor communication with staff from managers or the top of organisation, where people have been left feeling like they don't know where to go for more information or who to ask, or indeed there isn't a culture where they could ask those questions. And then, of course, if we think about disabled women, so women who identify as disabled, there is some absolutely shocking figures and an inquiry has been launched because disabled women aged 9 to 64 were 11 times more likely to die from COVID-19. So we know that people from global majority groups are also more likely to die or end up in hospital, but also that disabled people have been neglected in this way. And of course, people can be from communities of colour and they can have disabilities. The other thing that's happened is during this particular wave of Black Lives Matter in June 2020, and we all know that Black Lives Matter is not new. As I've said before, it is around 600 years old. And it's also very important to stress that the black history and black journey does not start with slavery. But to say that black women have had to educate their workforce on racism. I've got many friends who've said that they just got too exhausted and burnt out, who had to take sick leave because they were expected to educate everyone else on what was happening and systemic injustice and racism. Then, of course, we also have domestic violence and sexual violence. There has been a little bit of talk about this, but it's more likely to impact women. I'm not saying that men don't encounter and experience domestic or sexual violence in a home environment, but in particular focusing on women, it's more likely that women will encounter this. And also how well equipped are workplaces to talk about this? Now, it might be that workplaces that are more corporate will be better equipped because I know EUI, for example, has a very good policy on domestic violence but other workplaces if it's a factory or people are cleaning for a contractor that's going to be incredibly difficult are people even going to be able to see their managers let alone access policies and support Um, and just to say there is a distinction between domestic violence and sexual violence and if you want to know more please check out the podcast episode that I did with Katie Russell and Harriet Smales last November which goes into more detail about this The other thing is that women will support men in many ways. And we know that men are more likely to um, die by suicide. So they're three times more likely. And also they're more likely as a result of any mental ill health or feeling unwell mentally turned to substances. And I say this in a non-judgmental way. But of course, who often has to pick these men up? It's mums, it's sisters, it's daughters, and it can be partners. And so suicide has an enormous impact on women because of the burden it carries and the way in which women might be trying to hold and support the men in their life. And also the construct of women. So we've got binary, non-binary and trans and women who identify differently to the gender that they were born in. And that's also absolutely crucial because of the difference they will face in terms of prejudice, discrimination and lack of opportunities. And then we also need to think about the kind of sector. If we think about the creative sector, it's I don't want to say that it's been decimated because that would absolutely break my heart, but how the creative sector has been treated, the whole campaigning about retraining. And actually, if someone's a dancer or musician, they've probably spent at least 20 or 30 years of their life perfecting their craft and being a performer, including the arts in its widest, widest sense. So, um, you know, artists who paint, who draw, who do mixed media, uh, dancers, theatres, theatre producers, actors, the whole gamut of people. 
and also teachers. So in 2018, the government said the government statistics said that 75% of teachers identified as women. And these women not only teach, but they will probably manage things within their own personal domains as well. And teaching assistants also tend to be predominantly women. So I also know that teachers have been under incredible pressure, um, working till midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock. And again, the lack of guidance and the ambiguity and the impact it's had on their mental health. And the other thing is employers not agreeing to women who are pregnant or over 28 weeks. They should be, the Royal College of Obstetricians, Obstetrics and Gynecology says they should be working at home. And even though this has been the case, many employers have been telling women to come into work or that they have to start their maternity leave early at 28 weeks in order to get that. And then, of course, there's also the issue of immigration uncertainty, the visa, um, the visa pain that people have been through and the lack of compensation from Windrush. So that still hasn't happened. The Windrush scandal is still a scandal. And if you want to know more, please check out the episode with Patrick Vernon, where we talk about this in more detail. So I've probably painted quite a horrible picture. Um, women's well-being wasn't great in the first place. If we think about systemic uh, procedures and how things were done and the way that systems are set up. So what are the things that can actually be done then to help people? So I do think there is a lot that workplaces can do. An easy thing that could be done is to create care packages with local companies. So businesses supporting smaller businesses. And this could be food delivery. This could be around um, if it's safe to go to, um, for a massage or aromatherapy or acupuncture or any kind of care that's available. Advertising the fact that uh, people can claim £6 per week for working at home and not making people jump through hoops with this and actually getting payroll to send messages out to all employees to let them know that this is possible. And also that people can claim £2.40 a week through HMRC. So they would have to set up a self-assessment tax return, but they could do this um, and helping people to do this. Quick access to equipment. So we know that many people don't have the right equipment to work at home. And whether someone has declared a disability, especially if they've declared a disability, or even if they haven't, and I know some uh, employees have been really good at this, but making sure they've got the equipment to help them do their job at home effectively and not damage themselves anymore. So the whole thing around health and safety is absolutely vital and sending them information to do their own desk, um, desk assessments. That there should be more directive guidance on pregnancy and working at home. And again, this is absolutely paramount to health and safety, but also to support a pregnant woman's um, well-being during this time. Because, of course, it's not always easy. Pregnancy for some people it can be very physically challenging and you don't want to add to any of that burden. I think another thing is I mentioned was poor communication with staff. So conflict resolution and being aware of language that you use. So providing staff with training, equipping managers with how to manage during this time and really ensuring that there's training and support for all staff on what to do and how to start those mental health conversations and signs to look out for and things that you can do even in a remote environment to check in with people and to spot the signs when someone starts to become unwell. And I also wanted to mention, it's all very well me saying spotting signs online, but if someone can't even get online and thinking about digital poverty, which was a huge issue, as we saw particularly with many students who were suffering at the hands of the algorithm. And if you want to know more about that, please check out the episode on the messy myth of meritocracy. But how can workplaces, and they can do easily because often there's a case of bulk purchasing, you know, there's spare phones lying around. You can easily help your staff with this and ask the question, and make sure they've got some access to be able to connect um, with and, you know, for them to use that as a mechanism to connect with people, not just the workplace. 
And the other thing is to link in with organisations that can help in a proactive way. Uh, so you might be listening and thinking, well, this sounds great, but I wouldn't know where to start because our company is really small. Well, there's lots you can do. And for example, linking in with your local rape crisis or your women's aid organisation to help you shape a policy on domestic and sexual violence, for example. You can also work with your local race equality councils if you have one um, or, you know, look at local information around who's doing race equality work and how they can help you. And really linking in with those organisations in a proactive way and not thinking, oh my goodness, we better do something and contacting people in what I would call a bit of a flap. And making sure that there's budget in your workplace dedicated to welfare, so the welfare of your staff. And I know budgets like this have been decimated in schools and sixth form colleges, but they do still exist. And so why not create one for your staff? An employee assistance programme is a really good place, but this might not work completely well with all organisations. So again, in corporates, it works really well. And a lot of corporate organisations have found that their employee assistance programme is being accessed more regularly um, and more easily than it has pre-COVID, which is great. People are using it. But also to make sure that any service that you commission or that you want to provide also has inbuilt into it cultural awareness or that people that are um, culturally you know, trained to work with people from different cultures because it's not a one size fit all. And we know that counselling and therapies can be very based from a Eurocentric model, which isn't going to work for everyone. Statutory sick pay, this is another one. So statutory sick pay hasn't been able to get people through. Um, it's great that it's there. Of course, I'm not criticising it, but that this needs to be enhanced. Um, and Mind have a campaign about this. If you want to know more, there is a link in the show notes on how to enhance this, particularly for people who are experiencing mental ill health or maybe haven't got a diagnosis as such, but they are um, experiencing and they are in that moment suffering with their suffering from mental ill health. So that's another thing. So how could you enhance statutory sick pay because that's super important making sure that your staff are aware of their rights because this message doesn't always reach people um, and often I think this is why breaches happen because it's very easy for people to think they have to accept things there might be a culture of coercion or fear where people feel if they speak up they're going to lose their job and following on from that, really realising flexible working um, and within that, the challenges with loan working and agile working. So a few weeks ago, I was a speaker at a loan working conference and I've included the link in the show notes if you want to catch that on the replay because there were some fantastic speakers at that. But to understand that one of the things we spoke about was... Um, of course, slips and trips in the home weren't necessarily covered under work, but now everyone, well, not everyone, but many people are loan working. So if there's a problem with your kettle or, you know, you were, I hope this doesn't happen, to fall down the stairs and you are working at home, it's in, it's in your working hours, um, whose responsibility is it? So that clarity and really understanding what flexible, the difference between flexible working, agile working and loan working and being clear about that and where possible giving people the options. So if there's a way that people can work in an agile fashion if it's not safe to go to the office and their home environment isn't safe as well what are the alternatives and what are the options because as we know people who work and if they're in difficult situation work can often be a salvation and something that creates a routine for them 
In the most recent Business in the Community survey in 2019, 62% of managers felt that they had to put their organisation before their staff members. And this was a survey around mental health and mental ill health in the workplace. Why? Why is this the case? And this is why I tend to work with managers, because I know they're very sandwiched, having been there myself. You want to do the best for your team, but you're in a situation where you're forced to put the organisation first. And you also have to manage upwards and manage senior uh, leaders' expectations. But of course, if this is the case, who is going to suffer? It's going to be the team and the manager. So it's absolutely essential that we look at systemic change and stop this pressure on managers to put the needs of the organisation first. And I would also say this isn't simply an issue with um, HR. So this goes beyond human resources. This is about a whole company approach that comes from the CEO, the COO, the CFO, the CIO and trustees. Uh, if it's a charity and the board, whatever your governing body is, this is not just about, oh, go over there and HR will solve it for you. This has to be a whole company approach. And so things like train the trainer programs that help to spot the signs remotely, you know, look at how video call burnout um, impacts people, tips for how to change those conversations, have those conversations, and really equipping people with the skills to have what might be perceived as difficult conversations. And the other thing to say, finally, is that, of course, the third sector really, really have taken a brunt of this in terms of funding, but also in terms of the way of the work that they've all been doing. And I also am very aware from reading things and knowing individuals, um, whether it's mutual aid groups in areas or just individuals getting in their car, uh, buying extra groceries and dropping them off to people. Now, the difficulty here is that they're not a constituted charity, so they're not signed up, so they're not eligible for a uh, lot of the grants that might be available. So how can we, and you know, are there ways in which we can support these individuals who are picking up so much of the burden and loan load, and again, who tend to be women, not exclusively, of course, but who tend to be women. So this is super important. And also the other issue around asylum seekers that have been put in hotels and are struggling, and the suicide rates, of course, naturally, because they're isolated, they don't have kitchens, they don't have ways to connect, and they might have had to leave people overnight. They don't and they're not allowed to, to work um, and they have very little money. How can we support them as a society? This absolutely shouldn't be happening. And many of, again, who will be supporting people or might have young children. So there is a lot to do. And as organisations, there are things that can be done. But sometimes we have to have those conversations that might be perceived as difficult or quote unquote icky. But essentially that we've got to keep thinking about intersectionality, the holistic woman. Um, and we know that there isn't one size that fits all. And you can check out my podcast episode about that, that I did for uh, International Women's Week, One Size Does Not Fit All. Uh, and it's just absolutely crucial that we keep having these conversations and making sure that we understand the challenges that people face. And there are things that you can do. And if you're listening to this as an individual, please don't forget that I have got my mentally healthy professional course. That's an online course. You have access to the materials for a year and it's £57. And if you're an organisation and want to talk to me more, um, but are worried about your budget, then I am offering power hours for £150 for a power hour to have a discussion and to see what you could do. So I really hope you found this episode useful. Um, I realise it's probably longer than I wanted it to be, but there was a lot that I needed to say and actually being part of the APPG was a real honour and has given me a lot of food for thought. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd love to know what you thought and you can also message me on LinkedIn 
tweet me on Twitter at, at Diverse Minds or also leave something on my Facebook page, which is also at Diverse Minds UK. And I'll see you in the next episode. In November, we are going to be talking about bullying. We're going to be talking about the 16 days of action uh, for sexual violence. Um, and I've got some absolutely brilliant guest speakers for you. So I'll see you very soon. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.